We have come to the end of chapter 17. We have come to the Lord's Prayer, what we called part three. This is the last section of the three parts that we have divided as we have looked at the Lord's Prayer. Again, just for one second, we have recognized that what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, is really not the Lord's Prayer. He, didn't, he never prayed that. And that was not something that was intended to be repeated over and over and over again. And yet, that is what's done with that particular prayer. This is actually the Lord's Prayer in chapter 17. This is what he prayed. And we have been looking at that. And we have noticed that he is not praying for all of mankind here. Let me remind you of that as you look back to verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world it says in verse 9. So this prayer in chapter 17 is not a world or universal prayer. He is praying not for unbelievers, but for believers in the context. He has progressed in the prayer in chapter 17, and it started very small in that he was praying for some personal needs that we saw basically boiled down to his desire to be glorified himself that he might glorify the Father. And then he worked out of that small group to a larger group, and that was his disciples or his apostles, his 11, as we saw beginning in chapter 17, verse 6, on down through verse 19. And now this morning, when we pick it up in verse 20, he has come to the largest group that he is praying for, and as we will see in just a few moments, he is praying for all believers, including you and I. Back then, when the Lord Jesus Christ was praying this prayer, he was praying for believers right here in the year 2011, or looking ahead just a few weeks to 2012. This is also referred to as the Lord's high priestly prayer, as we have noted. Now, why call it that? Well, let me just bring it into perspective today, especially as it relates to you and to me, beginning in verse 20. The high priest in the Old Testament, and there was only one high priest, he would represent Israel. When he went into the Holy of Holies once a year, on his breastplate were the nations of Israel, all 12 of the tribes. And he would go and represent them as a nation before God. Only the high priest could do this. He was like an intermediator in which the God would look on the high priest and as he would confess the sins in behalf of the nation and individuals and even in his own sin. As that intermediator, he would act as the high priest that could go into the presence of God. Believers back then did not have that privilege. Well, when we come to this prayer in chapter 17, and in particular this morning as we pick it up in verse 20, and he's praying for believers including you and I, Jesus Christ is acting in that capacity as the high priest, as the one. And he is the one and only intermediator. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment? 1 Timothy chapter 2. So in understanding this high priestly prayer, though this is a very well-known verse to believers, it is worth looking at. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Very important to today's lesson. Here it reads, there is one God, and notice this, 
one mediator, a one go-between, also between God and men. Who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. So important to understand. There is no other go-between. We don't need somebody else. Growing up uh, as a young person in the denomination that I was in, the concept was you had to go through a priest or you had to go through a saint or you had to go through somebody else to reach God. That is not true. The scriptures make it very clear. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He is the only go-between because he is the only one that could represent us before God as the one who atoned for our sin. We don't need a priest. We don't need a minister. We don't need a, we don't need a, a, a rabbi. We don't need a saint or somebody else. We can go directly to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. He acted as the high priest. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. So when Christ is praying here in John chapter 17, he's acting as the high priest, the only one that could truly go before the throne of God and really pray for us the way he did, does or did. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, let's pick it up in verse 14. I want you to see this. Just go through a few verses together. And listen carefully as I read. Therefore, since we, that is believers, have a great high priest. Remember the Old Testament? Only the high priest could go and represent all of Israel. It says we have a great high priest. And it identifies him. Look. Who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest, and this is great, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have many weaknesses. We have sin. We have problems. We have discouragement. We have all of these things. Can God really understand? Well, it says here, our high priest can sympathize with us. We have one, verse 15, who has been tempted in all things as we are, notice this, yet without sin. That's why he could represent us. That's why he's our high priest. He did this without sin. Verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, we can pray, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you have a need, where can you go? Directly to God. Through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't need to go through somebody else. We don't need saints. We don't need Mary. We don't need priests or rabbis or anything else. But directly through because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Watch this. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men the things pertaining to God in order to offer, up, offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. That was the high priest of the Old Testament. And watch. No one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Comparison, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become high priest, but he who said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he suffered, excuse me, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he is heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered, and having been made perfect, watch, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So back in John chapter 17, as he's praying to us, he's taking before God the Father as the only one true high priest sent by God, identified by God, to pray for us even before we were born. What a privilege to think about that today. That as you and I sit here, the Lord Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, in this prayer, beginning in verse 20, was praying for us, and he could do that because of who he is. That ought to be encouraging to us as well. So if you trusted in Christ, you're right here. So let's look at this last section, beginning in verse 20. And I have an outline there in the bulletin. In verse 20, we have him praying for a larger group, but yet it's still a specific people. Let's read it. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Who is that? These alone were the apostles. That is the these alone. He had just prayed for the apostles, but that wasn't the only ones he was praying for. Who else is he praying for? But for those also who believe in me through their word. So he's not just praying for the apostles, but now he shifts to the larger group, and that is for all believers, those who would also believe in me. Let me take a moment on that. It is dealing with the concept of those who will be believing. And it is the ongoing believing. It is a present tense. It is not just that uh, he came. It's not just believing that. As we come to Christmas time, there's a lot of people that believe that Jesus Christ came into the world. Pastor Chris mentioned this morning. Uh, we believe he's a historical figure, but that isn't where it ends. That is not enough for salvation. It is not just believing that Jesus Christ was a religious leader. So when he's talking about those who believe in me, he's not just talking about believing facts. As we have seen coming through John's account, what is this belief in me then? It's believing that he's the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the, he is the deliverer. He's the only one who's one with the Father who was sent here by the Father. He is the one and only Savior of the world. That's who the world needs to look to. Now, let me say that this is not a message that's desired by the world that you and I live in in the 21st century. It is looked at as too narrow. It is looked at as not being politically correct. It matters not. What matters is the message that God has given us because he's the one I have to answer to. He's the one that you have to answer to. And when all else is said and done, and you reach the point of your deathbed, he is the one you're going to go before. And it matters not whether it's politically correct. What is going to matter is whether you believe the message that he's given. And his message is that Jesus is the Christ. That is the whole context of this believing in me. Just go back in what we've learned. Go to John chapter 14. Go back to John chapter 14. Look at this. Look at what he has just told them before he prays this prayer. In John 14, 6, he said this, 
Jesus said to him, watch, I am the way. That's exclusive. Then he says, and the truth and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Then he says this, no one, that's universal. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way of salvation. That's why Christmas is so significant when we think about the birth of Christ. As was sung this morning, this is God with us. Look at chapter 14, verse 9. Philip said, oh, that I basically, I'm summarizing it, but oh, that I can just see the Father. I would love to see God. Look at what Jesus said to him in verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet have you not come to really know me, Philip? What does he say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How could he say that? Unless it was God with us. Go to the 17th chapter where we are. Go back to chapter 17 of John. Look at verse 5 that we studied together. Now, Father, glorify me. Watch this. Together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you. Well, when was that? Before the world was. You see? He left heaven because man can't save himself. We can't save ourselves. No church on the face of the earth, no religion on the face of the earth, no measure of good works will ever get us right with God. We could never do enough good works. Not only that, it would not make up for all the sin that we have done. You say, well, I didn't commit murder. In your heart, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever hated someone? I just heard that word very recently. Have you ever hated someone or has somebody ever hated you? That is the sign of murder. If you've done that to anyone, you've committed murder in your heart. Well, how do you atone for that? How do you just, by going to church? Does that take that all away? No. Only by this one coming into the world. Only by God himself saving us. So when it talks about that they may believe, or it talks about those who believe in me, it's believing that he's the Christ. Go with me to one more verse on this. Go with me to John chapter 20. I told you when we started the book that we would see these verses over and over and over again. Here we are. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, watch this, which were not written in this book. But, verse 31, these have been written, including chapter 17. Why? So that you may believe, and here it is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The whole objective is to get you to believe so that you'll have life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, so that when you reach your deathbed, you'll go into the presence of God for all eternity in what we refer to as heaven. It only happens to those who believe in him. There will be thousands, if not maybe hundreds of thousands of people, possibly millions, who during the next two weeks will sing all kinds of Christmas carols, many of which they won't listen to the words that they're singing. Hark the herald angels sing. How many are going to sing that? And they'll sing the words that he came to give a second birth, and they won't understand what they're singing. What do you mean a second birth? Nicodemus asked that. Can I go back into my mother's womb? No. 
That is that he's given you life, forgiveness of sins, and a new life with God. That's what the songs are all about. Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. So when he's praying this prayer, let us understand. When he says in verse 20 that I'm praying for those who believe in me, it's not just believing facts about the Lord Jesus Christ. That will not get you to heaven. It is believing in which I pre present my eternal destiny on the one that God sent, and I believe that he was sent so that when he died on the cross, that sacrifice was for my sins, personally. And when I've come to believe that, when I've come to believe that he's the Messiah, when I've come to believe that child went to the cross, rose from the dead, and is back in the presence of the Father now, and that's the only way of salvation, when I believe that, I truly am a Christian. I've come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praying for true Christians. It's not just facts. In in, in, incredibly, he said in chapter 8, I won't turn there, but you might recall verse 31, he said that if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. It is not just mere profession of faith. It's ones that continue through the ups and the downs. They continue on with the things of Christ rather than desert the things of Christ. So he's not praying for the lost. He's praying for those now who will become true Christians, who will become believers, not just by noting facts, but they will become believers. How? How do they become believers? Look at verse 20. Through their word. Through their word. He's praying for those who would hear from the apostles. He's dealing with faith. Salvation is by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. I love Christmas for this one reason. It is a tremendous visual aid to the world of God's gift. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you next week will exchange gifts? What's a gift? By its own definition, it's free. I don't think there will be too many of you that will receive the gift and say, terrific. How much do I owe you? No, 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 no. You will take that gift freely. That's what God's gift is. Salvation is a gift. It cannot be bought. It's received. And by the way, using that illustration, you don't get the benefit of the gift till you open it up. And you don't get the benefit of salvation till you receive it and open it up. And that free gift of salvation is found in Christ. So believing that Jesus is the Christ, how does it happen? That faith happens through the apostles' teaching. It is not religious teaching. It is not church law. It is not the laws of Fellowship Bible Church or Roman Catholicism or Baptist teaching or Presbyterian laws or any of that. It's simply the apostles' doctrine that they gave. It is not based upon feelings. It isn't faith because I had this special revelation personally. I want you to notice that. I'll make the statement now. Every single New Testament believer, you check this out, every single New Testament believer, including today and if the Lord tarries beyond our generation, that will ever be saved must come through the apostles' teaching. They must. 
We didn't meet them, but we're relying on it. It is not based on visions. How does faith come, Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing, and is that all it says? And hearing by the word of God. Where did we get that New Testament teaching? The apostles. That's why he prayed this way. I'm praying for all those who will hear your words, because they're going to come from God, and they will believe. That's why you have the response of reading. Go back there for a second. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to look at it closely. Now, I know that's probably got a number of people here trying to stimulate their thinking and think about people that came to believe who didn't hear the word. And I said, New Testament, after the Lord ascended, not without hearing the word of God. Doesn't happen by visions. And in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, just for time's sake, go down toward the end of it, pick it up in verse 18. For through him, we both have our access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You notice that saints are not dead people? If they were having fellowship with the saints, these are people that are alive and are the household of God. Now watch this. Having been built upon the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitly are fitted, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what he said. What are we built upon? The foundation, the teaching of the apostles. And that's what he prays for, everyone that would believe on them. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ entrusted his word to them. They are the ones that identified that Jesus was the true Messiah. You check it out. Let me give you some references. In Acts chapter 2, right after the day of Pentecost, Particularly as you look down in that passage, you find that, for, well, let's turn there, Acts chapter 2. Let me just show you a couple of things quick, rather than just referring to it. I want you to see it for yourself. Acts chapter 2. First notice verses 22 to 24. Right after Pentecost, he's preaching to them, and then he says this, Men of Israel, listen to the words of Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested, who is speaking here? Peter, one of the apostles. Attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in the midst of you, just as you know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Now jump down to verse 36. Therefore all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, who? Jesus Christ, watch, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what happened? Now they were hurt, they that heard this were pierced in their hearts, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And he told them, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. That's what he said to them. And you jump down to verse 42 and notice this. They were continuing devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. 
Peter right away, right away from after Pentecost. What you've got is the message that came through Peter to help them understand in the New Testament that Jesus is the Christ. I won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 19, you have the disciples of John the Baptist. What was the problem? They were living and the apostles come along and Paul says to them, to who do we baptize? John's baptism. Wait a minute. You need to understand that John was talking about Jesus. And he gives them the apostles' doctrine and points them to the fact that now they need to see that Jesus is the Christ. Then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on them. According to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, many of you know that passage. It is the apostles' doctrine that we are to take and we are to teach to men who can teach others, who can teach others also. Why? Our responsibility is to teach the New Testament. Our responsibility is to pass on that which was given to the apostles. And so belief comes through that. Why say that? It is so important. Because there's many with a different understanding of Jesus Christ. But they need to understand the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And they need to understand salvation as delivered and professed by the apostles. Not by some church doctrine. It'll do you no good to base your salvation on what I think. You need to base it on the word of God. You need to base it on what God has said. And that's why this church stands for what it does stand for. It stands for what? The word of God and preaching and teaching the word of God. Why? That's what people need. This world is filled, not just with sin. You see it everywhere with the things going on. There isn't a day that doesn't go by that on your TV set and the internet, on your newspapers, if you're reading them anymore, on all of those things, or on your computer or handheld, whatever it is. And the news is bad, 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 bad. What's the world looking for? Good news. There is good news. I put the message in the bulletin, and I purposely emphasize the word good news. The good news is found in Jesus Christ. And the word of God, it is the disciples, the apostles that passed this on. So how does through faith come? Through faith alone, through, in Jesus Christ alone, and it comes through the Bible, folks. The book that people don't want to read anymore. This nation was founded on it. When I went to school, you could pray and you could read the Bible without embarrassment. This country wants to take it away. It's sad. It's sad. Many of the things that we have today and the reasons we have what we have as a nation and the freedoms are because they believed what was in this book. And it's amazing. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ before you and I were ever even a twinkle in our parents' eyes, as the expression goes. Before that was even true, Jesus Christ was praying for you and I here. If that doesn't bring me to my knees alone, that Jesus Christ would pray for me, and he knew. Let me tell you this. Some of you are older than others, and anyone who got saved at an older age has probably had this experience. You say, oh, I just wish I was saved younger. God knew exactly when you were going to get saved. He knew the timing of it, and the timing was perfect. But it wasn't until somebody came and gave you the message that came from the apostles. Whether they did it in tract form, whether they did it in opening the word, whether you heard a message someplace, you had to hear that Jesus is the Christ, and that came through the message of the apostles. If you want to have people truly saved, 
If you truly want to have a revival, all this talk about revival, bring them the word of God. When people get down to business with the word of God, that's when revival takes place. When the word of God is preached with power, it isn't by bringing somebody else in. And not that there's not a place for that. It's not what I'm saying. What did he pray for? What did he pray for us? It's found, the contents found in verses 21 through 26. The first thing is he prayed for unity, verses 21 to 23. Notice it. In verse 21, that they may be one. In verse 22, that they may be one. In verse 23, you and I and I and me, uh, why? That they may be perfect in unity. Oneness, oneness, oneness. He's praying for unity. What unity? Let me help you with this. He's not praying for organizational or institutional unity. The world has this all messed up. This is one of the biggest passages that is used by the ecumenical movements. That we had to place aside all of our differences and just live in harmony and live with what everybody believes and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Is he praying for that? Is he praying that even if there's doctrinal error and if there's apostasy and there's some orthodoxy that you just lay aside that and work together? Is that what he's praying for in this unity? Not at all. We were founded on the word of God and we ought to remain in the word of God. He can't possibly be praying for that and he's not. He's praying for their unity as members. He's praying for unity among believers. Remember what we said. Verse 9 was so crucial. He's not praying for the world. He's not praying to mix doctrinal confusion. He's not asking true believers to come alongside every religion in the world and to place aside their differences. He never prayed for the world in this prayer at all. He's praying for those who are truly Christians, first of all. You've got to be founded on what? Verse 20. The apostles' doctrine. It's got to be rights. And then he's praying for unity. What type of unity? First, positional. Unity that will be found in Christ alone, that we have as believers. It is unity in him. Notice it. That they may be one even as comparison. You, Father, are in me and I in you. That's unity as the members of the body of Christ. He's dealing with our positional unity first, having the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are all members one of another, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All that we could get that straight. Did you hear that? If you're a true believer, you are members one of another. We can't do without one another. That's the unity he's talking about. We all have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We, Christ is the head. We are the body. We are all one. It's made up of many members individually, but we are united. And it's amazing because we come from all different backgrounds. We come from all different places where we were born. All those differences that we have, and we are now one in what? Faith in Christ. Only God could do a miracle like that. In addition, he's praying to the unity in position, in the practical sense. I'm sorry, not just their position, but in the practical sense. In what way? 
that they may be perfected, verse 23. In what? In goals, in purposes, in spirits. Listen carefully. I will probably get feedback on this, but listen carefully. What he's talking about is for us to recognize our unity of purpose and goal. This is not about me. This is not about you. This is about Jesus Christ. There are too many Christians who their focus is in their little world and they don't see the overall focus of what God's doing and their purpose and goals on set to bring honor and glory to the Lord in everything that we do. Or their goal and spirit is their own little world and what they want to do. Listen, I think Philippians 2, that's on the walls. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2 for a minute. I think Paul outlined very well how we should be thinking if we want to understand this perfection in this passage. Look at just one verse, Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at verses, just verse 2, verse 3 and 4 on the wall. He says, make my joy complete, watch, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united, that's unity, in spirit and intent, that's unity, on one purpose. There's four items for you. Mind, love, spirit, purpose, that's the prayer. And you go back in John chapter 17 and that's what you see. That they would have that relationship with the Father being one, just like the Father and the Son are one. How's that possible with the indwelling Holy Spirit? But I want you to see that it's also the outworking of being perfected in unity in that mind, soul, spirit, love, purpose. How do you see that, Pastor Dan? Because that's what reflects the evangelism. Look at verse 21, 23. That they may be perfect in unity so that, here's the purpose, the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. Notice that. It is evangelism. You talk about evangelism today. What is the evangelism or witness to the world? It's verse 23. As they observe believers, not denominations getting together, but as they, believe, as they observe believers functioning together, as they observe them, that they know who God is, that they reflect God in their life. Does this mean that we won't have some differences in thinking and so forth? Not at all. But whether we truly walk in the unity of God with our focus on him, with our focus on what he's doing. And so he was praying for the church, not only for their salvation through the word, verse 20, not only for their positional relationship of unity with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, but also for functional in the world, that the world would come to know. Notice that, that the world may know that you sent me. How is the world going to know that Christ was sent by observing believers in their unity, not in their divisiveness. Often the church of Jesus Christ is known about, known for its divisiveness. 
They will recognize God working in the situation. What's the hindrance to that? I'm going to give it to you. The hindrance to that is sin and selfishness. That's what the hindrance to our unity is. Think about it. I already mentioned we come from different nationalities. We come from different backgrounds. We come from re different religious upbringings. Just think about Fellowship Bible Church. You don't have to go any further. Any local church. The church universal. People have been saved out of all kinds of things. From atheism. From denominationalism. From religion. And they've come to trust in Christ. Some are Italian. Some are Irish. Some are English. Whatever you want to put in Scottish, go on. I don't want to miss somebody. I will. But do you know the point? Some have lived in wealthy circumstances. Some have lived in poor. What is the one thing that's united them together? The apostle doctrine and coming to believe that Jesus is the Christ. How is that going to function in the local church? He was praying for it back then. It's going to happen when their hearts are in unity, in mind, in purpose, in direction. And it is sin and selfishness that gets in the way. And he was praying for that. We can't let that get in the way. We ought to be known by our love one for another. And you say, yeah, Pastor Dan, take the message. And you know what? As I stand before you, that is correct. But it's a two-way street. We all need to love one another. You need to love the people on this side of the room. But yeah, you know what they did to me? Is that the way love is to function? Yeah, you ought to love them on that side of the room, too. You don't get out of it. And those in the nursery or in the back or that didn't make it today and are traveling. That's how it's to function. I am absolutely amazed at how long Christians hold on to things. Well, 20 years ago this happened. 20 years ago. And you're still thinking about it? You better take a good look at your salvation. That's the way we operate. We need, he was praying for the unity of the body so we would represent Christ to the world. So that we would function as you go into your neighborhoods, as you go into work, as you go in and function in this world, they are to see your life as bringing honor and glory to God and they want to know about the Christ that you know. He was also praying, and I need to finish it up, but he's praying for their future resurrection and home. Why? Notice verse 24 very quickly. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that you may see my glory. This is a rather interesting statement. Here, while the Lord was on the earth, he prayed for you and me. He prayed for our unity in the body of Christ. He prayed for our unity one with another, and he prayed that we'd be with him. Isn't that amazing? We think that God owes us heaven. No, he doesn't. Do you ever think about that? We talk to people, in fact, unfortunately, many times the gospel's given out that way. Wouldn't you like to go to heaven? I've said that to you before. Who in the world is not going to say, of course? And then we think, you know, read these four spiritual laws and you're all set. That's not the way it works, folks. We don't even deserve heaven. We don't deserve forgiveness of sins, but God's love, that's the love of God. He not only loved us enough to die for our sins, but let's be honest, take a step back. 
Jesus could have died for our sins and says, that's it, fine, I died for their sins, and then we could just go to the grave and never be with him. We think we deserve heaven. No, the son prayed, Father, I want them where I am. Aren't you grateful? I'm grateful that Jesus not only prayed that his sin would be, that, excuse me, his dying for sin would be sufficient to take care of my sin, but he prays right there that they whom you've given me, that's only believers, the only ones that will be, ever be in heaven. I talked to somebody this past week, and their concept was everyone's going to get to heaven eventually. No. That isn't what the scriptures say. Narrow is the way. Few there be that find it. Is it because I want it to be exclusive? No, God says the only way you can get there is through Christ, and a lot of people want to get there apart from Christ. You can't do it. Those who you've given to me, and that's only believers, I want them where I am. And that's why we can be in heaven, to understand his glory, because the Father loved him. You notice verse 24, before the foundation of the world. It revolves all around God and his plan. God did not have to allow us into heaven, but he graciously does because the son prayed for it. And what are we going to do? Behold his glory. And he closes by praying very appropriately in verses 25 and 6 for their love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love forgives. Love apologizes all the way down the line. That's how love functions. Notice how he concludes it, verse 25. Oh, righteous Father. It's the only time he expresses that. A reminder of the righteousness of God. He says, yet I have known you, and now these have known that you sent me. And I have made their name known. Why? He says, so that the love which you love me may be in them. Is that the way we love one another? We studied in John chapter 13, verse 35, that we're going to be known by our love. That includes every one of us. Are we known by our love, one for our other, one for another? If that love of Christ, the love is Christ's love. If Christ loved us when we were enemies, if Christ loved us when we were sinners, that's where we love others. We're to have that love on this side of the room, that side of the room, for one another who are fellow believers universally. And that's the way we're to reflect our Savior. What did the Lord Jesus Christ pray for here? He prayed for you and I. And if you're here today and you're born again, you've come to trust in Christ, you've got to be grateful that Christ prayed for you. Because you did come to understand through the word of the apostles, as faith came through hearing, that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what he wanted to point us to. But he wanted to pray also for us to be with him. But while we were here, to be one in Christ and to be one, one with another. That's a great thing about communion. It not only reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, it reminds us that, that we're all one in Christ and it reminds us how we ought to be with one another. And that helps us to reflect. You want to be a testimony personally to the world? Let that be in you. You want to be a light as a church? Let that be the way we function, one with another, with the world, 
that they might come to understand. And if you're here this morning and haven't come to understand that Jesus is the Christ, that's the whole point of John's gospel. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the one true Savior of the world, personally. He died for your sins and to believe on him that you might have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. That's really our Christmas prayer. I'll be repeating that tonight and next week. But that's our Christmas prayer for you. That if you haven't come, that you'd take the gift that God gives. You'd receive it and open it up. The benefits are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your love and grace. Father, that you would save a wretch like me or anyone else that's in this room that has come to Christ. We come before you with nothing. We take what you've given us with gratitude and appreciation. We thank you for so great salvation. Father, at this time of year when there's so much Christmas celebration going on, help us to recognize that wonderful, unexplainable, there's no superlatives that can express that love that you have for us in sending your son. We thank you for the free gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that Christ prayed for our unity with you. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank you that he prayed for our unity with one another, that we are all members of the body of Christ. There's only one body. Help us to love one another as we ought, as you loved us. We thank you that he prayed for our being with you. We look forward to that day, to be with you in all eternity. But Father, while we're here, help that unity and harmony among us to be a light to the world that others would see and they would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We pray that for each heart here, for us as a church, and for the churches that you've established around the world, that during this season especially, that the gospel would go forth with power and that many would come to believe on Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.